Welcome to the Mapped Out Money Podcast, where we help you use your money to do more of what matters. You're listening to episode number 74. Well, we're uh, we're finally back. I know. I was looking back at our last episode, and we said we would be taking a break for a month. Thankfully, we added or so, because it was definitely or so. How, when was our last episode? February 15th. So that's almost three months. Like I said, or so. This is our first cross-state line house full of things yeah. move. And we, uh, we underestimated harder. how much stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. just a lot of back and forth. So. so here we are, and we sent out uh, an email a couple of weeks ago now, basically asking for questions. And we thought we were going to do a Q&A episode, just kind of filtering through some questions that y'all might have for us. And honestly, it was a pretty overwhelming response. We were really excited. Yeah, we y'all were awesome. Thank you very probably much. Probably like 50 people, I think, something like that. Yeah, we got a lot of questions. Um, that, that a lot of good questions. questions. And so it took us a little bit of time to try and group them together in a way that made some level of sense. And then I think we're actually going to break this up into three different episodes. Mm -hmm. And so... um, And nobody's question went to spam. No, nobody's questions went to spam. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, I will be the question reader because I think I will have less answering to do. (laughs) Okay. We kind of split it up into three episodes. And this one... Did you kind of give the themes? Yeah, so the this episode is going to be themed around some investing questions, some inflation questions, and some general budgeting tip questions. And then there are some more sort of personal or fun questions sprinkled throughout. But this one will be mostly investing, inflation, budgeting tips. Next episode is going to be a lot of... Um, not a lot, but but a handful of case study, what I'm going to call a case study question, where someone's giving us quite a bit of detail about a financial situation and asking for our response and thoughts on how to maybe navigate some of that. And then the third episode is going to be really mostly like personal update. So if you are interested in Mind and Hannah's life, our move, uh, the place we're selling, the place that we're buying, and personal questions about us, You'll like the third episode. If none of that sounds interesting, just skip that episode. There's a reason that's the third episode, too, to give us time to figure it out. Yeah, give us time to figure out what we're doing so that we can answer those questions coherently. All right. So that being said, we'll jump into the first first of three Q&As. So here we go. What are the generational differences in the perceptions of money you see in your coaching work? What does Gen X do differently than millennials or Zoomers? And this question's from Chris, and Chris is the man. Chris is the man. Thanks, Chris. So... Okay, so when I first read this question, I should say that I think it's really important to remember that anytime I'm doing coaching with somebody, my sample size is so small in terms of like the sheer number of people that I work with in any given year that I could be working with all outliers, right? And so anything that I see or notice amongst generational differences, it's not like it's a good sample size, right? This isn't like a, a double blind scientific study. And real talk, when you first read this question, you were like, I don't think I've noticed any. I don't think there's anything. And I kind of got you going because I was like, well, as a woman, I definitely feel like the generation behind me. So I guess a Gen Z, the Zoomers. The younger generation. Yeah. And you. and I guess the, the tail end of millennials, too. Uh, I don't know. I don't feel like like my friend group in our 20s 
nobody was getting Botox. Nobody was getting their lips injected. Like that wasn't happening Social media, when I was in college. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So we're seeing a lot more spending in, a, let's call it appearance. Um, and, and not that previous generations didn't spend on their appearance when they were younger, but it was different. It was, different. It was mostly clothing or makeup. makeup, but not like surgical procedures yeah. to to change how you look. I'm yeah. definitely seeing that. I see a lot of Botox. Uh, I see a lot of categories around that kind of stuff. And I'm really not even hating on whether or not that's good or bad. That's no, not I'm really not saying my it's point. good or bad either. I'm just saying I, it's very interesting to yes, me to see that. it's definitely a trend. Because like when I was, I mean, I've always kind of thought of like, oh yeah, you know, you might do some of that when you're in your 50s or 60s or I don't know. Um, but I, I, it never crossed my mind. I see it up and down the college. spectrum. So any, like when I work with, and you know, and I work with people of all ages and I see it with women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, but I see it with women in their, I don't do a lot with teenagers, but in their 20s and 30s. Even for stuff sure. as minor as um, like getting your nails done. I feel like when I was in high school and college, that was kind of like, Maybe around a special occasion or something, girls might have their nails done. Like, I know, like, you would notice everybody before, like, a formal, oh, everybody's got their nails done yeah. or whatever. But on a regular basis, like, keeping it up all the time, that wasn't happening as much, at least in the crowds that I was around, not well, even a part of. But now, that that seems, like, pretty standard for a lot of people. Well, and and I think there's a a... a reason that that's the way and it's largely social media right yeah. because pre 2000 you know facebook really came to to be being big in 2007 2008 instagram you know early 2000 what 12 13 something like that and then tiktok just in the last few years mm-hmm. and and so prior to to that time you know you didn't really as a woman especially who you're, you know, comparing yourself to how others look and comparing yourself to, you know, how you look compared to them and all that stuff. You were just kind of competing. I hate to use that term, but but in your own mind, you're you're competing, if you will, with like your immediate vicinity. Well, where and you at go that to school. point, at that point, there was still like, okay, there's normal people, and then there's like and then celebrities. There's celebrities. And now, you know, you've got this weird like micro celebrity thing where everybody's an Instagram influencer yep. and like has this. Instagram influencer look and that's um, what I mean so you have you have Instagram now so now it feels like you're not just comparing yourself to the other kids at your school you're comparing yourself to everyone totally I think it's really interesting I, this is kind of like a little bit of a tangent but um, Gabby Reese uh, when she was on Joe Rogan she was she was asking him because she was talking about how like when she was modeling all the time she's was a pro volleyball athlete and so you know she was like doing stuff for nike and all that kind of thing and she's like i mean you know i was wearing makeup and i was i looked done uh but i looked like i would be on a volleyball court yeah she still looked normal yeah she's like now it's like you know the the lips are out to here the eyelashes are fake the this the that like all the stuff is done and it's like you look at them and you're like yeah you're definitely not playing volleyball well not not only that so you have you have all that done cosmetically and then you're slapping an instagram filter over top of it yeah and so she was asking joe rogan she was like do men notice this like do men like look at these women who are supposed to be doing like athletic things and go like I mean, they look hot, but they're definitely not doing athletic things. <laughs> or are they like, oh, yeah, they're like so ready to go play volleyball right now. <laughs> like, I don't know. It is very interesting, it's, though, because now we're just so conditioned to see yep. it. That, that's what social media has done. So so to get back to the question, 
we we see that as different in terms of spending habits. We've definitely noticed an uptick in that category of spending, if you will. Um, another one that would be interesting, I think, for for Zoomers, right, the Gen Z, whatever, is the level of interest in driving. I see it in budgets all the time is drastically lower. So when I work with parents of teenagers or when I work with younger folks themselves, they're just not as interested in uh, cars as previous generation. Obviously, there's outliers that are super into cars, but especially if you live in a city, you're just it's just so normal now for kids to take an Uber or take a Lyft, depending on, of course, where you live. And so I'm seeing a lot of parents that I'm working with going like, yeah, we're, we're actually not as worried about getting a car for our kid because they're not even really interested in driving or whatever, which you know, when I was growing up, that's such a hard. Thing it's to very weird, right? Because when yeah. I was growing up, it was like I I went and got my license on my 16th birthday. Like I wanted that freedom so badly, and it's really funny thinking about how these younger kids, a lot of them just don't care. So I'm seeing that. Um, another trend that maybe is worth mentioning that I see again, this is just all anecdotal, but. I notice a lot that my older clients tend to be more nervous about investing. And if you want more on this topic, I, I really recommend, we've talked about it before, but the um, the postscript in Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, talks about how sort of the cycles of the average American and the way they view finances and how that's changed over time all due to what was happening at the time of the country for, regarding to inflation in the market and wars. It's really interesting because I do think when you were born has a big impact on that. And so back to the a lot of the, my older clients tend to be a little bit more gun shy on investing and, and have sort of um, nerves around the market. Whereas I will say one real positive thing for younger generation is they're just much more comfortable with investing, at least on the whole. And in my opinion, I think that's one of the good things that has come from these micro uh, brokers like Robinhood and Public and or Republic and a lot of these sort of super easy mobile phone apps that make investing feel tangible. Again, I, I don't necessarily think that they're always doing the smartest investing of picking individual stocks and trying to sort of hit the lottery with something, but the idea of investing and trying to buy assets and grow your wealth is awesome. And I do see that a lot of younger people seem to be more um, comfortable with that. So I think maybe the the summary of the investing piece and even the social media piece, how they, the comparison piece, how they tie together is with the advent of the internet, the big thing that I see is that like all technology, the internet can be used for good things or not so good things. And so you see a lot of younger folks using the internet to learn and uh, embrace things like investing and really um, use it for positive and get access to things that their parents or their grandparents never had access to. But you also see the negative effects of, you know, with the whole world being on social media, you can compare yourself to everybody and there's, you can be negative and negatively influenced as well and so well and it kind of elevates the whole like keeping up with the Joneses totally, thing totally yeah. so i think i think maybe that's the biggest thing that i notice i will say maybe the last thing is i will i notice trends amongst people less by generationally and more by 
what the you know socioeconomic status of your family was, right? So if if a really young person who grew up in a lower income setting versus working with a really older person who also grew up in a lower income setting, they actually have much more in common with the way that they view money and see money and interact with money versus somebody who grew up in like a middle class or an upper middle class or whatever. So I would say that I notice similarities amongst that more than I do just because someone's in the same age bracket. Okay. Are we ready for the next question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So this one is, which is better, a Roth 401k or a traditional 401k? And he says, I'm 37 years old and make about 85000 gross single in Ohio, if that matters. Which I know when you read that question, you were like, yep, it matters. Yeah, definitely matters. And that's from Britt. Thanks, um, Britt. So let's just Google real quick. Um, so if you are single in the U.S. in Ohio and you're making gross 85000 that means that your uh, marginal tax rate is 22%. Um, we won't we won't get into the difference between effective and marginal tax rates in this question, uh, but it's 22%. So the way that you're going to answer this question is you, you have a couple things you want to ask yourself. First off, do you think that it is more likely that you will be in a higher tax bracket when you retire or a lower tax bracket when you retire? And you can go find um, on the internet comparison calculators side by side between Roth and traditional and if you invest the same amount of money and you are in the same exact tax bracket, both for your Roth and your traditional, uh, you will end up in the same exact boat. So the question of Roth versus traditional really does hinge on, are you going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement or lower tax bracket in retirement? For those of you that don't know the difference, if you're in the States, uh, a Roth 401k or IRA allows you to invest money tax-free in retirement, but you pay taxes on it now. So that means if I were to invest $10,000 into a Roth 401k, I owe full-blown taxes on that in 2022. But when I take the money out in retirement, both the original 10 grand and anything I made is tax-free. Whereas if you do a traditional 401k, I don't pay taxes on that $10,000, so it reduces my taxes in this current year, but I will pay taxes when I take the money out in retirement. So if you feel confident you're going to be in a lower income tax bracket in retirement, you're better off doing traditional so that you can take the tax write-off now. If you think that you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement, you're better off paying taxes now, so choosing the Roth, so that you won't pay taxes later when you're in a higher tax bracket. So if you think the U.S. is going to go up in taxes, for example, or you think you're going to be making more money in retirement than you will now, then Roth is going to be your friend. This is an overly simplified approach, though. If we just stop there, most people will think that a traditional makes more sense for them. But this is my big caveat disclaimer. This has been my beef with the tra uh, traditional versus Roth debate forever since I've been involved in personal finance online. And that is that what I just told you only works if you actually take the tax money that you saved from taking the tax break now and also invest that money. Let's use a very overly simplified approach. Let's say take the $10,000, for example. If I were to invest $10,000 in my traditional 401k in a 22% marginal tax bracket, I am saving $2,200 in taxes. That's the money I'm saving this year. 
what most people do is they don't think about what they're saving because they don't if they're especially if they're a w2 job they're not they're not seeing that extra money all in one lump sum at the end of the year they're getting that money incrementally in their paychecks over the course of a year so they're not noticing that extra money what most people do is they don't even think about it they just spend that money it gets put into the rest of their budget and it just gets spent but the only way the math works and that traditional beats roth is if you take the $2,200 that you saved and go put it in a brokerage account and also invest that. That's the only way this works. So in the traditional world, if you choose the traditional 401k over the Roth because of this, this calculation, you need to take the tax break that you're getting and make sure that you're also investing that money. So in this example, the person going with the traditional route would need to be investing $12,200 a year. 10,000 into the bra or into the 401k and then 2,200 into a general investment uh, brokerage account. Whereas the person choosing the Roth, they're going to pay that $2,200 in taxes. So they just need to make sure they're doing the $10,000. All that to say, not to, to, to sort of overwhelm everybody with numbers, but the point is you have to ask the question of the tax bracket, like I said earlier, but then you also need to make sure that you are investing the tax savings if you choose to go the traditional route which is why when I work with people who I think that they are unlikely to, you know, budget properly and actually invest that extra $2,000, uh, I will often recommend that they consider the Roth because it's sort of a forced way to make sure that you are uh, investing enough to get the tax breaks. And then ultimately, you will end up with more money in retirement if you choose Roth versus traditional if you don't invest that savings. All right, Hannah, did that make sense? Yeah, I think it made sense for the most part. And so essentially, you can't exactly tell Brett which one would be better because you don't know whether he expects to be in a higher tax bracket when he retires right. than he is right now. Yeah. I mean, so this is where what most what people who really spend a lot of time thinking about this do, like me, is I tend to split, right? So we put some of our money in investments in Roth, and we put some of our money in investments inside traditional retirement. Uh, and basically, the idea here is in the same way that you diversify your investments by investing in different things, you can also diversify your tax strategy, because I can't predict where the US is going to be in 40 years yeah. in terms of their tax policy. I might be able to guess. Personally, I don't think taxes are going down. So I, I personally lean a little bit more towards the Roth. But that's my bias. Um, well, but I do I do both. I, I put some in each because I try to diversify my my strategy there. From what you said, you can tell me if this is right. But listening to your answer, I feel like a very simplified and condensed answer is: if in doubt and you don't want to analyze it that much, go Roth. Yeah, I would say that uh, that that's accurate. If you if you qualify for the Roth, which he does, if in doubt consider the Roth. It's it's sort of the, the easiest, more guaranteed approach, if you will. The only way you lose if you go Roth is if you end up in a lower tax bracket and um, you were confident that you would have invested all that tax savings along the way. So this is a related question. How have you balanced investing in taxable versus retirement accounts in the past, present, and going forward? Has it changed over time? Uh, this question is from Caleb, and he says, my wife and I are in our mid-20s, and this is something we go back and forth on all the time. The best way to answer this question is to first know how much money you think you need to retire. That That is the crux of this question and how you're going to answer it. 
And if you have you, a YouTube video yeah, on Yeah, if you're not sure how to calculate that, go search Mapped Out Money on YouTube. We have a video on, uh, it's called like My Wealth Plan, I think, or something like that. And there's a whole spreadsheet. But there's a whole spreadsheet that'll show you how to calculate how much you need for retirement. And first, you want to know that number. Because if you are planning to retire early and you don't need that much for retirement, meaning you, you have a much lower um, amount that you're spending each month, then this question really does matter to you, meaning you should give some thought to how much you're putting in retirement um, accounts that you can't really touch until you're a certain age versus a straight up taxable account that you can get at any time. But the way that you want to answer this question is you, you need to go figure out how much money do we need to retire? When do I think I want to retire? And then you can do some backwards math from there to start figuring out, okay, well, if I can't touch some of these assets until 59 and a half, and I want to retire at, say, 50, that means you've got to figure out how to pay yourself for 10 years before getting into those accounts. Now, you can get into some of those accounts and get into contributions, but again, that gets a little bit deeper than maybe just answering this question. But that's the planning. That's that's how you would approach it. And then you need to basically come up with a plan for paying for your life for that 10-year period before you can get into retirement accounts. So your goal should be to, to make sure that you have access to either in traditional accounts or through touching contributions or through part-time work enough money to live in the period between your early retirement and when you can touch all of the money in your retirement accounts. Um, so that's that's how I would do the strategy. Now, I will say, reading this question again, there there was one other piece I didn't touch on, which is how do you how do you balance real estate versus retirement accounts? The way that Hannah and I are doing the the real estate stuff is a little bit different because I'll be honest, it somewhat depends on what deals are available to you and and just what's coming down the pipeline. So with real estate, our strategy has been. I'm trying to make sure that we're maxing out the Roth IRAs. And then with any extra money, we're trying to to look at real estate deals. But to be perfectly honest, and we'll probably talk more about this maybe in episode number three, like we're not probably going to max out our Roth IRAs this year because we are basically we, we came across this this deal that we're really excited about. It's a real estate building um, that could be really meaningful for our long-term wealth building. And we feel like now's the time to go ahead and do that. So we're pausing our uh, retirement account contributions and going to really focus on making sure this deal is good to go. And then we will ramp back up well, the traditional investments later. It'll take a little bit to kind of get get the building like totally up and running for yeah, rental purposes. It's buying, buying the building so, and then we got furnishing, furnishing we got and, all kinds of expenses yeah. related to it. Um, but to give you an idea, again, it goes back to big picture vision. So I know how much money I want for me and Hannah to retire. And for me, I've got a, a loose breakdown. This comes back to that quote, um, plans are meaningless, but planning is everything or plans are nothing, but planning is everything or something yeah, like that. That's it. And so we have a game plan. I don't know if it's going to work out exactly like the game plan, but right now our game plan says that we want to retire with X amount of money invested and five real estate properties, two short-term rentals, and three long-term rentals. And I have sort of uh, estimated amounts of money that would come from those. And so at some point between now and age 60, we need to acquire five rental properties. And in terms of when we do that, there is a little bit of trusting God and trying to be open to 
what opportunities you know that tends to come themselves. come our yeah. way. So uh, it is a little bit of of trial and error and making it up as we go. Okay, so maybe the last thing I'll say, which will tie the two questions together that we just answered, is. Caleb is in his mid-20s. Him and his wife are figuring this out. They got a long road ahead of them. You might consider really leaning into the Roth strategy if you make below the amount that you qualify for the Roth because it can kill two birds with one stone here a little bit because legally at this moment, unless the government changes this, uh, you can get into Roth contributions before age 59 and a half. So... Going back to what I was saying about retiring early, retirement versus taxable, as part of that strategy for how do you fund your life up to the 59 and a half standpoint, if you contribute $6,000 a year, maxing out your Roth IRA, 12000 for each of you, do that for 20 years, well, that's going to be 12 times 20 of contributions that you can get to before you have to wait till you're 59 and a half. So the Roth can be a helpful strategy if you're trying to think through this question to at least make sure you're maxing that out because you can always get to those. Yeah. And also, good job to Caleb and his wife for thinking about this. Oh, I know. This is huge. A lot of mid-20s are not thinking about that. Uh, Not at all. Okay. So now we're kind of on to um, software-related questions. Um, Do you have any thoughts on Tiller Money? Uh, Yeah. That's from Brent. So Tiller is a... uh, a really cool budgeting tool. It integrates with Google Sheets. I've had a lot of friends that have a lot of success with it. So my biggest thoughts on Tiller versus other tools like YNAB or Every Dollar or whatever is you need to find a tool that works for you and works for your the way you're going to use it. So some one of my biggest um, attributes that a, a good budgeting tool must have is it must be easy for me to get into and utilize quickly. And more important, if you are married, it should be easy for both of you to do that. So while I personally would totally get down with Tiller because I'm a big spreadsheet guy, that is not going to jive at all with with Hannah in terms of like checking it on the fly, looking at it before you buy groceries. And so we personally just aren't going to ever really utilize a spreadsheet for budgeting. But uh, but I think Tiller is a great tool. And if you really like it, um, I've met the founder of Tiller. He's a good guy. Like they're they're great people. So um, I, I have no no bad things to say about it. Good answer. Uh, Nicole wants to know if you know of a good app to keep track of debt reduction. And she says she wants a good visual reminder and encouragement for reducing credit card balances. Um, and she's seen that Dave Ramsey has a great one, but it's part of his like pricey $100 plus app. Yeah. So a friend of mine runs a app called the Debt Payoff Planner. It's just a, I think it's just a phone app right now. I don't think it's on the computer. It's pretty slick and um, they've done a really nice job with it and they've helped a lot of people really visualize that. So check that one out. Probably the most popular one is Undebtit. It's that's undebt.it. It's really, really good. It is probably more of a, I would say it's it's powerful. You can do a lot with it. So don't get overwhelmed by going to their website, but it's really cool. And they've done a nice job with that. And then honestly, there's lots of really, really good spreadsheets out there to track this kind of thing. If you just Google debt payoff spreadsheet, there's a ton of options. Now for non-spreadsheet people, that's not going to be a good option. I would go with debt payoff planner or undead it. But if you are kind of a spreadsheety person, there's tons of great free templates out there that you can utilize. Cool. Um, I like this next question. I think a lot of people will relate to this. 
Um, is YNAB worth it if you're in a good spot? So Todd says, I'm using YNAB to track expenses, but I don't plan my spending. We have a good income, we're debt-free, and we're financially independent. So should I just let it go? So I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear what you have to say on this, Hannah, especially as you know someone who's not as in the weeds of the budgeting. My, my standard answer for this is it all depends on how big your goals are and how efficient you want to be towards hitting them. Even for people who are, let's say, higher income, or not even high income, let's just say you have a really high savings rate. Your your income versus your expenses are, there's a big gap, and you're investing well, and you're, you're doing great. You really don't need to be stressed about it. Should you use a budget? And my answer is still yes, because you probably should care about how efficient you're being. And for some of those people, I've worked with people where we literally create a four-category budget. Like we have one line called bills, one line called discretionary spending, and like one or two items that they're saving for. And that's it. And they have a four-category budget, and it works great for them. So back to what I said about goals and efficiency. If you have really, really big goals, like you're trying to quit your job, you're trying to adopt kids, you're trying to move and buy a dream house, whatever. If you have some bigger goals and dreams, even if you have a healthy savings rate, I think that you should really care about budgeting so that you can be efficient. So what do I mean when I say efficient? Well, if you can imagine that you were somehow able to calculate what percentage of your money you're using towards your highest priorities, your highest values, the things that are most important to you, the average person without a budget is maybe 50-50. And the reason I say that is just because if you look up studies that have to do with decision making, they find that about 50% of your decisions that you make every single day are based on habits. They're not done consciously. They're done subconsciously. And so I'm being generous, I think, by saying that half of all of your spending decisions you're doing towards your highest, most important priorities and values. Well, by using a really basic budget, you can pretty quickly go to like 80% and get like, hey, 80% of my money, I'm confident, is going towards the things that matter the most to me my highest priorities and values. And if you get an even more dialed in budget, one that you're using every day, you're looking at, you're making spending decisions by, you're really trying to dial it in and make sure you're using as much of your money as possible towards those goals, those big dreams that you have that you're excited about, then maybe you're at a 95, 98% efficiency. And my, my point has always been that no matter how much money I make, even if I make 100 times what I currently make, you can spend all that money. Just look at celebrities. There are people that make millions and millions of dollars a year that spend it all and find themselves in debt. So I want to be efficient with my money. And so I think that you should consider having a budget regardless. So I think we actually have the same answer, but maybe some different, I don't know, different ways of communicating it. I think think we're in agreement on what both of us, what you said and what I'm about to say. So if you had asked me this five years ago, I probably would have been like, yeah, don't have a budget. Do what you want to do. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, don't make your life harder than it needs to be. I do not feel that way now. And we were actually just having this conversation um, a couple weeks ago because I was talking about how, you know, words of the year or whatever are like very popular. I've never been a very like word of the year type person. But I will say the word that I really think is important when I think about like what we're doing is stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so as a Christian, I look at resources that you and I have been given, money, time, like... Flexibility, all that. And so when I look at all of these resources that we've been blessed with, 
I do look at it and go like, how are we being called to steward this? Like what, why has God given us these things and what does he want us to do with it to glorify him? And um, I think budgeting helps you do that because if we just had, even if we had bukus of money and we didn't think ahead of time about like, okay, how, what are we going to, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to steward this? Um, If you just let me loose, like I would spend like, thousands and thousands of dollars at an antique store and like buying random art like and, I and never cooking right yeah yep. like I would never cook I would have all the specialty eat coffee out three times a day and it would be awesome I wouldn't yep. even have a kitchen at my house like <laughs> boom done um no I'm just kidding I would have a kitchen but for somebody um, else to cook in that's right <laughs> I would have a kitchen with a personal chef um yeah so I think I think that a budget is very important because it does just help you be mindful about like, how am I stewarding what I've been given? The other part of that is it's just such a great facilitator of relationship and conversation if you do it correctly. Now, I think a lot of people think of it as being the opposite and being like a relationship killer. Like, oh, you want to put your relationship on the rocks? Try to get your spouse to budget with you. (laughs) And that's not how it should be, you know. And I think um, if you come at it with the right perspective, then I don't think it's that. And I think that budgeting has brought us together in so many ways and keeping a budget and like balancing it and just being in it regularly it's like a prompt yeah. for us it's a forced you know? conversation so yeah we're not going to go more than a week without seriously considering how we're using our money together and i think that's i think that's really good because money's one of the more the most powerful resources we're given i think yep. um so yeah i i think that budgeting is worth it and i think you know maybe it's a little bit of a journey for you to get there where you feel that way um, my personal opinion is I wouldn't just give on up on it completely. Yeah, and like the way that he phrased it in this question, right, was is YNAB worth it? And then also ended the sentence with should I just let it go, right? And so look, if YNAB, if you're like, hey, th- this isn't worth paying 100 bucks a year for, fine, like go find a free tool and, and get your spreadsheet or something. But I, I would not just let the budgeting go. Yeah. I think that it's very important to have some sort of regular system for making sure that you are proactively planning for your money and stewarding the resource as well. I think what you just said, Hannah, was perfect. And then having a process by which you check to see if you're actually sticking to the plan. Yeah. Here's one last thing that I'll say on this. (laughs) We like can't stop talking on this. Well, no, I, I love this question. I get this question a lot. Imagine the company that you work for. Can you imagine if they were like, all right, we're gonna make an announcement. We uh we actually make good enough money now that we don't even budget anymore at this company. We don't even keep the books. We just uh, we just look at the bank account and feel it out, decide who we should hire and how much we should spend, how much product to buy based on that. We just we just kind of guess. Like everyone would very quickly go, that's the stupidest thing they've ever heard, right? No matter how big your company is, Amazon probably should have a budget, right? Yeah. And, and the same is true for people. I agree. I think that's good answer. Okay, um, YNAB, moving from tracking to budgeting. Um, I love the idea of YNAB and the virtual envelope system, but we've always been more of the look at what we spent and feel ashamed and hope to do better kind of people. I love that. Uh, I'm trying to use YNAB, but struggling to make the mental switch to a proactive budget approach, even though it really aligns with what I want and how to budget. Do you have tips or tricks to change your mindset about budgeting or how to switch to a proactive budget? 
we kind of tackled that and how we answered that last question a little bit. You know, it's just like everything, right? If we live life like everything's about us, it's so meaningless because it's not about us. You know, and like as a Christian, you know, for sure, like this is not about me. This is about God and his kingdom. And like I play such a tiny, tiny role, but you have to reorient yourself to that continually. Right. You lose sight of that Um, when you have that type of mindset and go like, it's not all about me. So how am I stewarding my money in a meaningful way? Um, my motivation to budget is much higher when I think of it that way. I think maybe another way to even say that because your so your goal, your big vision is like you want to be a good steward of the resources that God has given us. So what what you're kind of answering there is why does this even matter to you? Yeah. And so if I was if I was coaching this person and we were kind of working through this, one of my go to sort of exercises is is a five why exercise. It's very common about your goals and your vision for why you even care about budgeting in the first place. Let's play this out for a second with me and you. So if you came to me and and asked this question, I would say, well, why do you want to budget? Why do you even, so this person cares, she cares about YNAB and she thinks the idea of envelope budgeting is good. Why? And so you might answer that by saying, well, I, I want to get out of debt or I want to feel control of my money. Okay. Why? Why do you want to feel control of your money? And then you might say, well, because it stresses me out. Well, why does money stress you out? Well, because it feels like we never have enough and I can't do the things that I want to do. Okay, well, what do you want to do? Well, it'd be really nice to be able to support my family in a certain way, to give to organizations that I care about, contribute to my church, or um, be able to take a nice trip that I've always dreamed about taking. Well, why why do you want to do those things? And then this, that's thats the next why that like oftentimes will stump people a little bit because they go, well, I don't know, man, it sounds fun, you know, but it's like, no, 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 dig deeper here. And if you dig deep enough, you can finally find something that's like, well, I, w- I want to be a good and responsible mom and daughter or whatever it is for you. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the best that I can for the relationships and the people in my life. If you can keep that top of mind is going to help push you to actually stick with this thing. So normally what I tell people is you need to come up with some sort of statement along the lines of, I want to budget and manage my money well, so that blank, if I don't blank. And nine times out of 10, if you're not proactively sticking to a budget or even proactively looking at it, and you're just sort of looking at it in the past, that is indicative that your why statement, why you want to do this, is not strong enough. And it is um, unclear. And so I would ask you to spend a lot more time thinking through that piece. Because if you can come up with a why statement that's strong enough, you will stick to this thing. Yeah, it's really spending spending more time on the, the fun part, totally. right? Like yep. the, the What does it mean and, for you if yeah. you're going to budget well? Mm-hmm. Instead of just the, okay, here's numbers on a spreadsheet. Yep. This is what I'm going to do. Um, okay, do you have any thoughts about putting everything on a single credit card in order to try and get points and then, you know, like pay it off each month? I've watched the YNAB credit card video like 10 times and I still struggle. That's from Erica. Yeah, so again, first and foremost, with credit cards, I've said this a bunch probably, but I always liken credit cards to playing with fire. It's super productive. You can cook stuff with it. You can heat your house with it. 
You can uh, run locomotive engines with it, right? You can do a lot of cool stuff with I was fire. Like, how many examples are you going to give us of what we can do with it? <laughs> you can do a lot with fire. It's good, right? Uh, but you can also burn the crap out of yourself if you're not careful, and you can really hurt yourself, and you can burn down a whole, what, half a Gatlinburg got burned down last year because of a fire two years I think ago. That was last year or um, two years ago, but it's okay. We'll let it go. You get the idea. The point is, credit cards are kind of like that. If you are very careful, you can get points, you can get free stuff, you can get extra insurance perks. If you are not careful, you can rack up a whole ton of debt and really burn yourself. So credit cards, remember, they are intentionally made to confuse you. And so if you are confused, that is not because you're an idiot. It's because credit card companies make money off of your confusion. And so if you find yourself confused and you've really tried to master it, especially as it relates to YNAB, Consider just not using credit cards for a while. Consider sticking them in a drawer, and if you're working on paying them down, pay the bill every month, but don't actively charge to them. Learn to master the system without credit cards. And then once you've proven to yourself that you have what it takes to really stick to a budget, to proactively use it, to check your budget before spending, and you're noticing your habits and behaviors change, if at that point you want to reintroduce a credit card to gain some extra points and perks, cool. But... Take, take a slow approach. Don't feel yeah. like you got to do it all at once. Okay. YNAB, what to do daily to master the next phase. So Leslie says, I'm new to YNAB and found it very hard to get. Um, I slash we have the tracking and input area down, but now we need to really dive into the budget side of things. What are the top things that I should do each month to begin to master this next phase? So I would encourage you, if you have not, to go listen to our episode that we did at the start of the year. Uh, it's something called... Uh, I'll look at the episode. Yeah, it, it's like uh, making 2022 your best year ever or something like that. In that episode, Hannah and I do a deep dive into our sort of coaching methodology around track, plan, spend. And that's our three steps that we, we recommend people work through. Leslie, it sounds like you have gotten the tracking part down. You've been tracking your money really well, and you've got an idea of where your money's going which is awesome. Your next phase is actually to do kind of what we were just talking about a little bit ago, which is like getting really clear on your vision and your plan for the future. Why do you want to be doing this? What do you want to accomplish over the next couple of years? Where do you want your life to go? Hannah and I sit down and we plan quarterly. We actually just did our planning um, last week for our life and we updated our life vision document and we answer questions like, how do we want to be spending our time and how do we want to be uh, spending our, our our days working. How much do we want to be working? How much money do we want to be making? Where do we want to live? What hobbies do we have? Really getting clear on our life and our plan and getting clear on why we're excited about sticking with our budget. What big goals we have that we want to make sure that we're doing. So that's the planning step. And then once you've gotten really clear on that, you're ready to move on to the spending step. And the spending step is where you go back to your wine app and you look at your categories and you look at what you've been tracking because at this point you should have data and you ask the question, are we actually spending in a way that's going to help us achieve this plan? And most of the time the answer is going to be not quite. And now we're going to say, okay, well, what are we willing to change in order to make sure that we're on track to hitting this plan? So track, plan, spend, those are the three steps I would have you work through. So I might even spend the next month just dreaming, just thinking about the future, allowing yourself to to create a vision for the next few years. And then after another month of that, now start asking, okay, well, what do we want to tweak in the budget to get on track? As far as what you should be doing each month, 
Um, I basically have a sort of end of month routine that I do in YNAB where I reconcile the accounts, I cover overspending, and I budget for next month. And then I have a quarterly routine where I go back through these three steps, track, plan, spend. And the quarterly routine is where I revisit the life vision and I go, has anything on this document changed? And boy, uh, our vision changed a oh lot yeah. <laughs> uh, from from January of this year to April. And so we did a big overhaul on our life vision document this past quarter. And we do that every quarter. Sometimes we don't change much. Sometimes we change a lot. It is interesting, though. It's like the things that we care about don't change nope. that much. But just uh, the way we thought those things were going to play out changes. A lot. A lot. Yep. And so, but I found it's important to do that quarterly. And if you're doing that quarterly and then you're roping that into a budget review process, then you're going to be able to go, all right, well, this is how we've been spending our money. Are we spending our money in a way that's going to help us do the live vision? And if you want a visual of this, uh, we did a video on this on our YouTube channel. If you just Google search YNAB reports, there's a dedicated video on the reports process and how I use it as part of our life vision. And the Make 2022 Your Best Financial Year Yet podcast episode is episode number 69. Cool. So if you haven't listened to that, I definitely give it a listen. Scouts flopping around on the floor. The cat's up here like alternating between chewing on my podcast microphone cord and then just rattling things around on the desk. Good old Airstream podcast. Everybody's getting antsy. Okay, so now we're kind of moving on to surprise expenses and building up your money. So John asked, how do you deal with surprise expenses? Although some aren't really that big of a surprise, like, you know, you're going to have to buy new tires every so often and all that kind of stuff. So that's the question. And he lives in Canada. Well, so the reason that the Canada thing is important, right, is that John kind of answered his own question here. How do you deal with surprises? For example, some aren't really surprises, like changing the tires biannually in Canada. So I have learned this. I didn't know this prior to helping people to live in Canada. But in Canada, in a lot of the parts, it's so snowy that you have to change tires every winter. And then you literally get a different set of tires. And there's a storage fee associated with your tires. Really? There's a whole, yeah, it's a whole thing. Oh. And so a lot of Canadians literally change tires on their car every winter. And they get their summer tires in storage. And then they have them switched out, right? Well, a lot of Canadians, at least from my experience, uh, don't plan for that, right? And so then what happens is all of a sudden, uh, boom, this expense hits them and they go, oh, crap, I got to do the tires again. And it catches you by surprise. And so John actually kind of answered his own question here in that the vast majority of what we call surprise expenses actually can be anticipated. And so the the best way that I know to deal with this, YNAP actually calls these true expenses. Um, so if you've heard that concept, that's what that is. But the way that I know how to deal with these is to try and really sit down and brainstorm based on where you're at in your life, what things might come up over the next 24 months. Well, and also using your reports. Yeah, using so your reports if you've got We've talked them. about yep. this. Like when we first started budgeting, we had a huge unexpected expenses category. Yep. And then, you know, you kind of you keep that and you put notes about, OK, what was the unexpected expense? And then when you go back and look at that report, you start seeing patterns and you go, oh, I guess that's really not that unexpected now, is it? Because mm-hmm. it's coming up over and over again. Yeah. Big one for us. That first year of marriage was like uh, wedding gifts, wedding gifts. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, mm-hmm. wait a second. Yeah, we're in our early 20s. All of our friends are getting married. Some of our friends are having babies. We should probably just have a category for gifts. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like if you're if you're in your 20s, you probably need to have a category that's like attending weddings slash bachelor, bachelorette parties slash whatever, which you can get us on a whole thing about that stuff. But um, but yeah, that probably needs to be something in your budget. So, you know, really the best way to do this is twofold. Number one, sit down and try to anticipate stuff. Make a long list of all the things that you think could go wrong that might catch you by surprise. And then two, as part of your quarterly routine, uh, you should be reviewing your reports and seeing if there's anything that you're starting to notice a trend on and then add that in. It's it's just embracing the fact of life, right? I tell all my clients that have 16, 17-year-old boys, I say, oh, great, you have a, a teenage son? Odds are they're probably going to total a car before they're 20. About a half in the U.S. do. So why don't we just like start planning for that? Let's go ahead and put some money aside for that. Yeah. And not kid yourself to pretend it's not going to happen. Building off of that, this question is, how do you keep the annual expense money or really any, I would say any expense that you're like setting aside for that you don't exactly know when it's going to come, but you know it's going to come. How do you keep that money safe from being pillaged during the year? And do you use a separate account? Yeah, then they let me read the rest of it because they went on to kind of give an example that I think a lot of people can relate to. I find that if I look at a bank balance and think, oh, I have $343 in there, that means I have money to spend on buying burgers or a new jacket. Not thinking about the fact that my Netflix subscription is next week and then $10 needs to be going towards another annual subscription and $75 for pet food in a, fu- in a couple of months. And so really, I have 350 but because all those expenses are really kind of spoken for, I maybe only have $6 until payday. Or maybe your $6 in the hole is what they actually <laughs> said. And so part of this question, right, is like, how do you, they, they also go on to say, like, how do you mentally maintain what's available money you can use and what's not? So I think you get two options and you can use a hybrid approach for a little while. But one is bank account budgeting. This is what we did in our early years of marriage. We had six, seven bank accounts and we quite literally would get a paycheck and then put money into different accounts. Right? Yes, to... we would do that. <laughs> Nick would do that. Well, we would have an account for vacations, an account for pet food, an account for subscriptions, an account yeah. for car stuff, right? And uh, and then that way, if we had money in the main checking, then we could actually spend that money and feel confident that we could spend that money. And that works really well for a lot of people. But if you need more than that, you can find that having all these different bank accounts can get really cumbersome. And so most people will end up looking for a tool like YNAB or some other other budgeting tool. And these days, uh, we just use YNAB. And so we have one bank account for our personal life. We have one bank account for the business. We don't even hold any money anywhere else at this moment. And literally all of our money is in the checking account. And I don't think... Honestly, I don't think either of us could tell you how much money's in the checking mm-hmm. account right now. No. But we can probably tell you close to how much money we have left in eating out this month or how much money we might have left in our individual spending money. Yeah. And that's because we use our categories in our budget to live and die by. We don't really even care about what's in the bank account if what's in our categories is um, what we're using to make decisions. Yeah. So Nick and I, it's become a joke. We say new month, new money, because like the first week of the month, we go out to eat like crazy. <laughs> we're so bad about that. But we're like, oh, you got that money. New month, new our... money. Yeah. We don't we don't go out to eat the last week of the month because we've long spent yeah. it uh, oh, before yeah. that. Oh, yeah. But new month, new money, baby. We are going out yeah, to you eat. better believe we're going out on the yep. first of the month. So, you know, um, I will say that this takes a long time 
to build up the the discipline for. Okay, for the first few years that we were using YNAB, we still did have a few bank accounts we were utilizing to hold money to make sure we didn't touch it. So this is not an overnight, you know, flip switch thing. Kind of tying the last question into this one, we have a really clear picture as to what things could go wrong and how much money we should be setting aside for auto maintenance or medical bills or stuff that could throw us off. And we also have a really clear why on why we want to be so prepared so that we're not getting into, I mean, nobody wants to get into a bad situation, but like, if you have something stronger than like, well, I don't want to not be able to pay for that because I don't want credit card debt. It's like, okay, well, why? Why don't you want credit? What would that yep. keep you from being able to do? Yep. Like, you know, how would that impact your life? Like, we have such a clear vision on why we don't want to get into those negative financial situations that um, it makes it much easier to start looking at your YNAB categories with really the same mindset that they're looking at their bank account, right? Totally. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, there may be money there, but there's not any money in this category. So, not doing it. Not doing it. Yep. Yeah. So, I'm a big fan of the bank account thing, uh, especially if you are tempted to go pillage your other accounts or your other categories. So, use bank accounts and set up some mental barriers in your mind that, like, legitimately you do not get to touch that money. But again, to your point, the only way you're going to stick with that is if you're so clear on why this is important in the first place. And then if you're clear on all of that, eventually you may find that you don't even need a savings account, separate account. Anyways, during the pandemic, when uh, savings account rates dropped so low, that's when I was like, forget it. I'm just going to put all our money in the checking yeah. because this is just annoying to manage. Yeah. And so until savings account rates come back up, we're just going to have one checking account for everything. And like our Christmas money, that we're not going to touch for another eight months is just sitting in the checking account. Yeah. So. Okay. Stealing from the future. So how do you manage this very related? How do you manage income in YNAB? I'm a month ahead, but I always manage to steal from the next month. Any tips? That's from Sarah. So this is one of those, it's good to know the rules or at least have a set of rules for yourself, but then sometimes it's okay to break the rules, but you want to know the rules first. So as far as the way I manage income, Sarah, I'm not sure if you are irregular income or if you have a steady paycheck, but the way that we handle income either way is we try to get a stable paycheck. So for my business owners, for me and Hannah, we have a separate budget or a separate bank account for the business stuff, and we pay a regular paycheck into our personal bank account every month so that our personal life feels stable. So as far as the first part of your question, how do we manage income? We do that by staying ahead in the business side so that we can always afford to pay ourselves a steady paycheck on the personal side. Now, once we get to the personal side, um, we also try to stay a month ahead there. But as far as not stealing from the future month, this really goes back to the why. You're going to notice over and over again, we're just hammering this. But it's because if you're not super clear as to why you want to stay a month ahead, then you're you're always going to be tempted to go pillage the future month to do something now because that's more fun. The rule, as I was saying, is whenever we have overspending, so like, for example, we just, <laughs> this, this goes back to like, you know, shouldn't be surprised, right? We bought car tires for Hannah's car five years ago. We shouldn't be surprised that we needed new tires this week, but we were caught a little off guard. We weren't expecting it to happen right this moment. And we didn't have quite enough in our auto maintenance fund. So we're going to have to cover that overspending from elsewhere. 
I try really hard to cover it from somewhere else within the same month. So I try really hard to not have to pull from the future if at all possible, we'll go, okay, well, we're going to go out to eat less this month. We're going to do less towards clothing or less towards whatever discretionary stuff so that we can make sure we, we cover this overspending. So we try really hard not to go into the future. That's the rule. If you need to go into the future because something large happened, then absolutely it's not the end of the world. That's part of it. That's part of why we stay a month ahead is because it acts as a one-month emergency fund. So that's totally okay if it's needed. It's just that your first line of defense for overspending should be trying to cover it from within the same month. Okay, pay cut coming up and surprise expenses. Any suggestions for tightening down a budget for a big pay cut and or how to spend less? Seems like there's always something that I don't know how to plan for. Uh, this week, it was a car alignment and repairing shelves in my closet. Adios, $200. Probably sound like a broken record here, but I'm going to start with... The more, the more data you have, the better. And so if you have a good handle on how much it typically costs you to live your life, if you've been budgeting and tracking your money so you have a good idea of what's going on, that's going to help you significantly because then what we can do is try to make a game plan for where we are okay to cut to get in line with this new pay cut. And so whenever Hannah and I have a big life transition coming up, uh, like we're moving cities or you know, changing what we're doing or changing jobs, or if I'm working with somebody who's getting married or having a kid, we'll quite literally create a fake budget. And we can do this in YNAB by duplicating a budget, messing around with categories, or you can do it in a spreadsheet. But I will create a fake budget based on what I know about my future income in that new situation. And I'll try to mess with the categories and the amounts to try and feel or see what it's going to feel like to live on that. And so if you know that you've got a pay cut coming, I'm, I'd am i be interested to know how far out that's coming. Because if, if at all possible, and this may not be possible, but if at all possible, it would be awesome to try and test out living on that new amount of money now. And, you know, so I just did this with a client last week where they're looking at moving apartments and it's going to be more expensive in their new apartment. And so they're going to uh, start paying, quote, that category, the full amount of the new apartment for a little while. They're not going to be moving till later this year, but they want to feel what their budget's going to feel like now. So we're testing that out. So in the same way, I would say, do you know what your pay cut is going to be? And if so, let's go ahead and immediately try to live on that money just to start testing what it's going to feel like. Because even if you make a mistake right now, you don't have the pay cut yet. So we, we you know, can navigate it. The second thing I would say is this goes back to your big picture, why this stuff matters to you in the first place. Because what you might find is you might find, look, I really don't want to live that life. Like the amount of money that I'm going to be living on with this new pay cut, it just doesn't allow me to live the life that I want to live. And if you find that out, well, then now we need to make a plan to either figure out how to make more money or potentially move so that we can reduce our expenses to a place where we are comfortable on that amount of money. Yeah, I was, uh, we don't know the circumstances around this pay cut, but you can probably hear Margot snorting. <laughs> She's over here. So if you hear anything weird, rest assured, it's not me, it's Margot. I blame all strange noises on Margot. Um, but depending on what the circumstances are, like whether this is a somewhat temporary um, pay cut, um, I don't know, maybe 
maybe you're in transition with a job or something, and this is kind of like a temporary job, but you're looking for something like a little more permanent that'll probably have a little bit higher pay, or maybe you want to be a Uh, at home more with your kids. And so you made the conscious decision of like, I'm going to take a pay cut so that I can be at home more. Maybe your previous job was crazy stressful and you were just like, I need something else, even if it doesn't pay as well, just for like my mental health. Um, And, you know, all of all of those are perfectly fine. uh, But it does come back to like that why, right? So maybe if this is somewhat of a temporary pay cut, you look at it and go like, okay, so I I do need to cut my lifestyle pretty heavily. And I just kind of need to embrace this as a season, like the season is just going to be a little less, maybe a little less comfortable. Um, And just kind of know that and know that you're working towards another season that's not going to be like that. Yeah. Or maybe this is kind of more of a permanent thing and you need to keep that why really front of mind and go like, yeah, I'm not able to spend money on this thing that I used to like doing, but I don't come home every day like just mentally exhausted and hating my life because of work. Um, So, yeah, that's my thoughts there. Yeah, no, (laughs) it's all good. And that's it is important to have that in mind because you want to you want to always keep in mind like what it is that you're truly going after. This is why that vision and planning is so important because what your vision and plan might entail is, okay, I'm taking a pay cut for now, but I'm, I got to find a way to make more money or your vision and plan might take into account. I'm taking a pay cut and I need to find ways to enjoy my life on this new pay, lower pay because uh, I actually don't want to do what's required to make more money. That's not mm-hmm. worth it to me. So both of those are totally valid. You just need to be clear on which option you're choosing and then be able to get excited about that option. The last thing I wanted to say on the unexpected expenses, and this maybe wraps up the section on all these questions about unexpected, is... <laughs> More airstream noises. <laughs> uh, the importance of that data cannot be overstated. Having some general idea of what unexpected stuff happens. And so if you are using a budget and tracking your money, I would encourage you to have two categories for unexpected things. One category called necessary unexpected expenses and another category called discretionary unexpected expenses. (laughs) And not to pick on Sarah, but looking at this paragraph, right? This week, it was a car alignment and repairing shelves in the closet. I would argue that the car alignment was necessary. I would argue that the repairing shelves in the closet, probably not necessary. And... I'm not saying you shouldn't have done it. I'm just saying you could live with non-repaired shelves in the closet for a time if it was needed. Nick and I were talking about this because especially like when you get into a new space, like I'm not picking on anybody with this. I'm picking on us. We do this. Um, When we go into a new space, it's like, oh, well, we have to do this to to that. And we have to do that. You got to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. And we got to make that look better. Um, And when you take a step back, you go, okay, yeah, I don't like those things, but they're fine. They're not hurting anything by being that way. And so as the budget allows, yes, we will fix those, but they do not have to be addressed right this second. And that's important because if you have some real good data on actual necessary unexpected expenses over the course of, let's say, six months, you might find that, oh, look, on average, I'm spending $150 a month on necessary unexpected things. 
If that's you, well, then wonderful. We just need to build that in the budget. We just need to plan for $150 a month to go to necessary unexpected things. And so, again, the more data you can get around the way you live your life, the more prepared you can be for the future. Now we are into some inflation-related questions. Do you have any inflation-fighting tactics versus incorporating reductions in purchasing habits? Um, perhaps investing tactics to hedge against inflating costs of living nationwide? If so, how do you extract those gains, if any, in this bearish market to offset costs? And that's from Jack. Yeah, then go ahead and read the, the next one, too, because they're sort of the same. Okay. I think it's Michelle. I'm sorry if I didn't say your name right. Um, what are some of the strategies that you are using to save money in this inflationary environment where prices are constantly rising? Oof. So, like we mentioned, we just put new tires on my car the Holy last time we did moly. it. The last time we did it. This is like the pro and the con of being able to look back and wind up, right? Last time we did it, it cost $260. 2017, 260 bucks For four tires. What And what did it cost this time? Labor and everything. I think we were close to 800 Yeah. Oof. Gosh. See, that's even higher than I thought it was because they quoted us like six or whatever. But well, that that's wasn't, just for the tires. Yeah, that was just the tires. So. Yeah. Ooh, buddy, that's fun. So that's what we were talking about. Even if we had... Um, and we didn't put Michelins on, okay? These are like <laughs> bare bones tires. Bargain tires. <laughs> um, we didn't have a category just for like tires. But even if we had, we wouldn't have had anywhere I wouldn't close. have guessed 800. Yeah. yeah. No, maybe like 400. Yeah. I work um, it into my auto maintenance, but man, yeah, that one bit us. So, okay. I, I think it's important to understand the way that I think about all this inflation stuff is to have a high-level strategy, overarching strategy, and then really drill down into the dirt of, like, the tactics. So let's set up the high-level strategy first. In general, in periods of rampant inflation, you don't want to be holding a ton of cash. Certainly not a lot of cash for a long time. So for me and Hannah, we are holding minimal cash and investing what we can because the only way to fight inflation is to own assets that can at least match inflation or potentially beat inflation. If you are holding cash money, you are just lighting money on fire every month by letting it get eaten up to inflation, which sucks. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't hold any cash. It just means that we are minimal about it. So first and foremost, you got to have some sort of emergency fund that I would say you have in cash. You want to be budgeting for those unexpected things that we were just talking about. For example, our Christmas money. We don't invest our Christmas money. It sucks, but I'm not willing to invest it because I want to be able to buy stuff at Christmas time. So, you know, we plan for all of our unexpected stuff. We hold all that money in cash. We also have an income loss fund. I use the word income loss here because most people think of an emergency fund as handling car stuff, medical stuff, house stuff, and income loss stuff. Well, we work house stuff, car stuff, medical stuff into the budget. And so our emergency fund is straight up just income loss. That is, if our business goes down or if we were working a normal job, it would be if we lost our job. So first and foremost, you should be holding enough cash for whatever your risk tolerance is for that emergency fund. Next, you got to determine your short-term goals and how much cash you need on hand for that. So for example, if you're trying to buy a house really soon, you don't want to invest that money. The idea, the overall strategy is hold minimal cash and invest as much as you possibly can to buy assets so that you can ride out this inflation. The problem with inflation is that it tends to have um, the unintended consequence of taking from the poor and giving to the rich. And that is the exact opposite 
of what the current administration says that they are wanting to do by printing money and funding all the stuff. How does it do that? Well, when you go through massive amounts of inflation, if you own assets, like you have stocks, or you own a house, or you own businesses, the vast majority of the time, those assets will rise with inflation. House prices will rise with inflation, historically. Stocks will rise with inflation and more, historically. And so if you own those assets, then you're really not going to lose. And so if you're rich and the bulk of your net worth is tied up in assets, well, inflation really doesn't impact you that much. It just impacts the day-to-day cash you have on hand. But if you're rich and the bulk of your money is tied up in assets... You're, you're, you're getting that you're, money. You're getting that money yeah. back in the asset prices. So it really doesn't impact you. But something like 40%, don't, don't quote me on this, but it's something Morgan like 30, talked about 35 or 40% of U.S. citizens don't own a single stock. Yeah. So if you think about, and, and who is that going to be? That's going to be disproportionately lower income folks. They don't have their money tied up in assets. They're trying to just buy bread and milk and gas. For those people, unfortunately, they're going to be massively impacted by all this inflation because all the prices of everything that they're buying day to day is going up. And you better believe that their income is not going up at 7 or 9% or whatever the current inflation is. That's not happening. Not to mention, there's a whole other aside, but like the, the way inflation is calculated in this country is totally wrong. They changed the way they calculated it from the 70s to now, and it's much higher than what's actually being reported. So what I want to focus on here is what should you be doing to control what you can control for you? That means you got to recognize that inflation is happening. It's real. It's not transitory. And you should be trying to invest and own assets, which if you don't know how to do any of that and you're brand new, go pick up the Bogleheads Guide to Investing. Go pick up uh, The Simple Path to Wealth. Learn how to open up a basic retirement account and invest into a broadly diversified index fund and start there. I definitely don't want you sitting around and watching the news all day and then just fretting about it, right? Um, let's let's not stress about it, but let's take it seriously and and put some actions into play as best we can and, and try to prepare for the future. So I think I would say is three things. Number one, Go read about the three-fund portfolio by uh, laid out in the Bogleheads Guide to Investing. The three-fund portfolio is a really great tried-and-true strategy for investing that I like to follow. And personally, I am you know, looking at weighting some of my investments a little bit towards the international side. And, and I want to be very careful to say this just because this is not prescriptive, okay? This is not financial advice. This is just what I'm doing. But I, I am looking at some of that because there are countries that maybe aren't experiencing as much inflation. So three fund portfolio. The second thing that you should be considering, I think, is at least getting a baseline, very simple understanding of how crypto works and what's going on with Bitcoin and Ethereum and that whole world. We will probably do some podcasts on this in the future with some more of my thoughts on it. This is something I've been getting very into over the last year. And I don't think you should rush out and put all of your money into crypto, but I think that you are being short-sighted if you're not at least trying to understand a little bit about what's going on and putting a little bit of money there because it has the real potential to totally disrupt everything that's happening with current um, monetary policy and uh, and what could be the future of our, our financial system. And then the last thing is U.S.-specific. One other strategy that I really like right now is looking at I-bonds. 
Uh, so in the U.S., you can buy, I think it's $10,000 a year up to I, uh, of I-bonds, and they are inflation-protected bonds, and they basically set the rate of return on that bond um, to match whatever the current inflation rate is. And it's a little bit more detailed than that, but just Google how to start investing in I-bonds. Robert Berger, uh, Rob Berger is a really great guy. He has a good YouTube channel and a good blog where he goes detailed on how to buy an I-bond. But if you have like a decent chunk of money, especially just sitting in your savings and you're like, ah, I don't really want to invest this money into the market, but I also hate that it's just sitting in my savings account and you might want that money in a couple of years, but you don't want to invest it, a really good option for intermediate would be an I-bond because you're going to be guaranteed to get the 7% or 9% that the current uh, inflation rate is. And so I'm a big fan of doing that. And so those would be the three things I would look at as far as tactically um, how I'm investing my money because of inflation. Now we're going to move on to tipping. <laughs> Todd asked, when is it appropriate to tip? It seems that everybody has these new registers that are programmed to add the tip. I feel guilty every single time. Why? Why do I need to tip at a coffee shop that pours me a drip coffee? It's out of hand. Nick has like made this comment a lot. Look, I laughed to myself tipping, so hard when I read Tipping culture in this country. Y'all are going to think that I'm a terrible tipper. He's not. He's because my rent, tipper. I'm actually, I'm actually a really good tipper, but I hate the way the it's culture is in this country. It's not against the people getting tipped. It's against the, it's against yeah. the system. I hate yeah. the system in this country. There's actually a really great article from Tim Urban on Wait But Why that he has really broken down the standards for tipping in this country. And he did a survey and actually pulled some legit data together. It's really good. And I've, I've used this for a long time about what the standard is, about how much to tip and when and where. So... I will tell you that I would check that out if you want to, like, make sure that you're matching the standard. But you can be frustrated with me, Todd, because I am super frustrated by it. I think maybe the last thing I would say is just have some sort of reasoning. At least for me, I want some sort of reasoning or game plan for how I do it. So what I— We tip more when we're, like, so that's at what the local say. coffee shop yes. and I kind of get to know the I tip and... a minimum of $1 per drink— so that would be an alcoholic drink if I'm at a bar or a coffee drink if I'm at a coffee shop. Um, I found that that's about the standard is a dollar per drink. And so we do a dollar per drink. The other thing is with Hannah and I, because we work remotely, and so a lot of the time we might go camp out at a coffee shop for two or three hours. Yeah, it's not often that we walk in, get a coffee and walk out. Yes. If I'm doing that, I also tip more because I feel like... Um, you're somewhat paying to like hang out. In yes, the space. I'm somewhat paying to hang out in the space. I'm not just paying for the drink. And so we also tip more in those scenarios. But uh, but for the most part, I try to make sure that I'm following the standard on Tim Urban's site or better is kind of how I typically do it. Okay. Uh, profit first. Are you still liking profit first? Have you updated or modified how you're employing it? And do you think it's worth doing a paid course on implementing profit first in YNAB? That's from Aaron. So, uh, okay, so do I like Profit First? Yeah, I like I like Profit First. Um, do I think it is the savior and all be-all system? No, um, but I think it's a good system. I think it's important to remember, and this is not a snide comment or a remark to Mike McCowitz. Mike McCowitz is a super smart guy. I love his books. I think he's done a great job. But it is important to remember, okay, what's the goal of Profit First? The whole thing that Profit First is, it's just taking the concept that was laid out in Richest Man in Babylon of paying yourself first. It's taking that concept from personal finance and applying it to a business setting. That's it. 
And so if you can just take that concept, which is super powerful, and apply it to your business, I love it. And so profit first is just a, a fancy way to make sure that you are doing percentage-based business budgeting. A lot of people do percentage-based personal finance budgeting. This is just percentage-based business budgeting. Uh, I still do use it, and I use it every every week. We do it for our business, and I allocate my percentages out. Um, and I found it really, really beneficial for me, especially for taxes, because it just feels really good to be able to have my taxes set aside and know I'm good to go. It also feels really good because it forces me to make sure that I'm operating my business on good profit margins. I want to make sure that I'm not spending over a certain percentage of my revenue on operating costs. And so I really like it from that perspective. Um, as far as changes or modifications, if you go look, I have, I have three videos on the YouTube channel on Profit First. The most recent one, Profit First and YNAB Simplified, I think is what it's called. Uh, that video is basically still accurate to today for how I use the system. And so I really haven't changed. I'm not sure if I've changed anything since making that video. So if you want my most up-to-date version for how I do it, go watch that video. As far as doing a paid course, um, I don't know. It, it really depends on, on how adept you feel you are. Um, I help tons of people every week do percentage-based budgeting for their business in YNAB. And uh, and I would love to help anyone do that. As far as should you pay somebody or should you not, I don't know that I can answer that. It really comes down to like, do you feel confident in your system? Do you feel like you understand the software? And is it working for you? I'll just tell you, Aaron, so we, we have a, a program called Ahead 100, and it used to be called the Money Mastery Class. And I in 2020 or 2019, I can't even remember, I don't know. Uh, we did a business version of this class, and we ran it, and it worked okay. Um, but I wasn't thrilled with the results, and it was largely because we had people all over the board. We had online businesses in there. We had a hairdresser in there. We had a contractor in there. Uh, we had a lawyer. We had people all over the place. And so their percentages, their profit margins, their types of businesses, their types of budgeting, it was just so different that it made the group calls really difficult to give value to everybody. And so I scrapped it. And so going forward, basically, I do one-on-one -on -one stuff with business owners because then we can tailor it in for themselves. And then um, we do have a lot of business owners go through our personal program. And then what I do is I help them over email and Loom videos to basically make a personalized business budget. And that, yeah. that works pretty well. I think in the future, I would love to do something where we have a course or a product for, you know, uh, hairdressers or gym owners or doctors or whatever. Uh, I think something like that could be interesting because then we can still make it somewhat personal. Yeah. But, um, you know, as far as whether or not it's worth it to you, it, it would be hard for me to answer. You know, it really comes down to like, uh, where do you think you're at? Uh, do you feel like you need help? Do you feel like you just need a second set of eyes? If you feel like you're pretty good and you maybe just need a second set of eyes, I'd say it's probably cheaper just to hire somebody like like hourly to just do like a 30-minute consult rather than like a full-blown course. But if you're starting from scratch and you're spinning your wheels and you're spending hours trying to get it going and YouTube is just not cutting it, then it might be worth doing a course. Last question is kind of a fun one from Chris. What are some hot takes you have about personal finance growth slash influences? First off, I don't really have any hot takes. Uh, I think that... There's I have a hot take. What's your hot take? So there are these like decorating 
kind of uh, design. Yeah, this is more in your things. world. Yeah. <laughs> There's like some accounts that are specifically dedicated to the idea of we like the before better. Like the before looks better than the after. Yeah, they're basically just out there crapping on people. Yeah, they're very snarky. And so my hot take is that if like your entire platform thing is just based on like critiquing what somebody else has done, it's very like anti-man in the arena. You yes. know what I'm saying? Like yeah, I'm, you're, I'm just you're, not here for it. I just don't like it. You're not doing the work. You're just sitting in the stands. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's okay. So that actually ties in with my, I guess, hot take, if you will, which is there's nothing new under the sun. Am I mad at, like, people who are out there doing scammy stuff? I guess. Like, I don't think it's nice. I don't think it's moral. I don't think it's good. But let's also not act like this is brand new. Snake oil. I Googled it just before this. Snake oil sales, that that uh, snake oil salesman, you know, mantra that people mm-hmm. have heard. That was in the 18th century. You had people selling snake oil 300, 400 years ago. Yeah. So this goes back to your thing. I also don't really like it when people spend their entire time just tearing down these so-called scammers. So this is a big thing in the personal finance world. You have a lot of people who are like scamming people on crypto of the day. And then you have other people who are basically spending their entire life trying to do research and ousting these scammers. And to me, there's this quote that I heard one time from Gary Vee where he said, I want to build the biggest building in town by actually building the biggest building in town not by tearing everybody else's buildings down. Yeah. And I get kind of annoyed with the people who their entire life and platform is dedicated to tearing other people down because like, bro, you're just trying to build your own platform too and get attention and make money. You're just doing it by crapping all over everybody else. This is the whole like, we like the before better thing. I don't know. I don't know if we answered that. I feel like that was a kind of well, lame no. hot take. But I think I think the cool thing about this, and this is why I tend to be I tend to look at the positive, right? I think the cool thing about the growth finance influencer world is that 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to learn about money, you basically had like four people that you could learn from because you could only learn from what was on the radio or what was getting published in the books. Yeah, like that's it. Whereas today, if you want to learn about money, you have a bajillion different people that you can learn from. And so you can go find the exact person that you really resonate with or has a similar life experience to you or comes from a different or similar background as you and really dial in like who you're listening to and learn from someone that's uniquely suited for your situation. And so I think the Internet has made that available, which is really, really cool. Of course, the downside is uh, the Internet has also made lots of other you know, bad influencers or scammers available. This really goes back to what we opened up the show with, right? The first question, which is like, the internet has allowed people to do a lot of really great things and also allowed people to do some not so great things. And it's on you, in my opinion, to take ownership and know the difference. Full circle. Okay, so no stuff we like. We will see you in episode two of Q&A. Thank you so much for sending your questions. Yeah, we love it. Obviously, we've talked on them for ever. (laughs) Bye.